Welcome to meet new musician at the Apple Store Kurfürst Nam in Berlin and please welcome our guest moderator, journalist and radio moderator Shelly Kupferberg. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And before we'll meet Hélène Grimaud here on stage, let's get an impression of the recording and the new album, please. When it comes to the D minor piano concerto, I have always felt since the first time I heard it that I couldn't live without that piece. The second concerto is for me a totally different universe because I feel as if the aspirations of Brahms um, when he wrote that piece were just almost unattainable. The range of emotions is on a completely different um, plane and the emotions are lived in a different way. Welcome, Hélène. Hi. Well, there weren't be there there weren't be so many female pianists who recorded the two Brahms concertos as I looked it up, and I really got the feeling when I listened to the recording. And when I saw you within the trailer, you have to put so much energy in it, in this kind of music work. So how do you feel while performing it and afterwards? Are you exhausted? Yeah, sometimes you're exhausted, but um, I would say mostly you feel reinvigorated by what the music is giving you and also the public. That's also a big part of the equation, of course. Mm. Brahms seems to be, for you, a very important composer. And um, what's so special about his music, about his person, for you personally? Well, Brahms has always meant so much to me since I first encountered him many, many years ago through his third symphony, actually. Um, you know, it's difficult to put words on the reasons why. Um, it has to do with a certain soul chemistry, some affinities, um, but also for me, what I admire particularly, uh, first of all, I love this nearly perfect synthesis between classicism and romanticism. I think it's um, 
absolutely wonderful. And Andres says something also very interesting about how his music is so um, cleansing. That there's something so wholesome about his compositions in the structure. There is, um, they're so harmonious from the form. Um, the content is, there's something very appeasing somehow in those, in those proportions. Um, something which I always found fascinating in, in Brahms's music is also this pulsation, the rhythm. I don't know if you've noticed that somehow the fast tempi are never really fast. The slow tempi never really feel slow either. And this has to do with the, with the texture, I think, of the writing, the contrapuntal element. Um, and then this very special quality of emotion, uh, which I describe as looking back onto the day that everything changed. Mm. And it's, um, it's something which really tears at you. Um, these will be a few of the reasons. Talking about the soul chemistry, as you called it, when did it start? When did you discover your Brahms? I think I was, I probably don't remember exactly, but I think I was about 11 years old um, when my father brought home this recording of all four symphonies, by actually by Karayan conducting. So how came you were deciding to record both concerts? Because I read that you had a strong relationship towards the first Brahms concert at first and discovered much later the second one. So when did you discover the first one, when the second one? And what let you think about record those two concerts? Well, the first one I actually discovered through the interpretation of Carlo Maria Giulini and Claudio Arau. And uh, I think I was, if I remember, I was totally transfixed. Uh, there was something that really penetrated me. I don't know how to explain it. It's the music is going through you, but it's also embracing you. Um, and it was really, I think, a life-changing moment for me. Um, I all of a sudden felt as if this music was going to be a refuge for the rest of my life somehow. Um, number two, oh, and actually my relationship to the first concerto hasn't changed, really. It is just as essential to me today as it ever was and ever will be, I expect. Mm. Um, number two was a very complicated relationship because I, I had, um, I, I never could get quite so close to the piece. I had problems with the structure of it. Um, I had problems with the last movement. I always found it um, quite anecdotal, so to say. Um, was, of course, um, just like so many other people are, um, so deeply touched by a lot of the moments in the concerto the slow movement for sure, some transcendent passages in the first movement, um, the scherzo, which we all love. But still, there was some element of um, distance somehow, which I was not able to 
to get rid of. Um, but then one day I thought, wow, with the relationship I have to this composer and how many of his pieces I play, it is just unthinkable that I would not be playing at some point the second concerto. Mm -hmm. So, um, that, and that was in fact part of the problem. It was a concept decision, not something that came from, from the heart as it normally does. So it was so. much more an intellectual thing to play the second yeah. concert for you? And of course, in, in, in that sense, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. I could not <laughs> become quite so intimate with the piece under such um, circumstances. So um, I had to come to the realization that the right time hadn't yet come. And um, I had the wisdom to actually stop the relationship at that point, thinking, you know how we can rationalize everything as human beings. And so I thought, well, you know, very few people play both. A lot of artists play one or the other. Some artists play neither. I actually don't really have to play number two. Now I can say I did it. Um, but it's, it's, and I knew that it wasn't the way I was capable of doing it too. So I left it aside. And then when I least expected it, uh, I think 2000, end of 2010 or um, the piece manifested itself to me and this time I knew I have to do it and it will be right. So Tot what totally mysterious process. I can't tell you it. It, it is always like this. I don't know <laughs> why. I don't know how it takes place. Fate. Or Musical fate. It must be and sometimes you reconnect with a piece by you hear it totally by chance on the radio or um, Sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's, I mean, of course, being that we know most, most of the pieces of the repertoire, um, even if we haven't actually played them, but we grew up with nearly all of them. So uh, at some point they come and manifest themselves. It's a little sometimes timid, sometimes powerful, knock on the door mm -hmm. from the inside, and then you know it's time. And, and, and indeed, when you start engaging yourself with the piece, there is no other choice but to, well, but to be doing it. And Brahms so. waited 22 years to write the second Indeed. piano concert, so <laughs> you could wait. Yeah, so perhaps it's, well. it's, it's no coincidence that I needed mm -hmm. as long to go from number one to number two. So. so listening now to those two concerts, what do you think about it? What kind of a, well, um, development do you hear within those two concerts? development of Brahms music? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I think you could say more or less his entire life, even though technically there were still a few more years to come. But it's, um, it's really quite remarkable because um, they're two totally different animals. Um, as I've said before, I really feel that the first one, there's something so vital, so raw about the piece, even though it was actually reworked for um, nearly four years before it reached its final form. In the musical content, there is something very, there is an urgency which um, is in the literal sense of the word irresistible. Um, number two is, is something so different because it really, uh, you really feel as if he's looking back onto his, his own existence and not only the way that it was, but the way that it could have been, and um, it's, it's a completely different journey, really. 
and you made a completely different journey for it because one concert you rec recorded in Munich and one in Vienna. Did it help maybe to digest those two kind of recordings? I believe so because it was premeditated um, that it should happen in this, in this way. Um, I always thought of the D minor as um, a very, this is gonna, going to sound now very odd, um, a very German concerto in the best sense of the term, okay. in its depth, um, in its tumultuous atmosphere, something which is in French you would say orageux. Um, the second one is much more Viennese in the character and in, in the treatment of the sound as well. So I thought Fit it was it well. a, yes, it was a good good match to do it in this in this way with, of course, anyway, two of the most wonderful orchestras um, that you could be hoping for. So. That's right. And let's talk about Andres Nelson, who is uh, the uh, conductor. So tell us about the working together. Um, before you recorded with Andres, uh, there's one photo we can see within the booklet where you sit together talking about the work itself. So how did you communicate it about it and what kind of ideas did he had and did you have? Well, Andres is an exceptionally intelligent human being and, and musician, but he's also a man of few words. And um, what I love about working with him is that it takes place on a different plane, really. Um, you can, of course, always discuss the music. You know, in, in music, you can do so many different things. You can play a certain theme a certain way. You can do it um, nearly in the opposite way, and it can be just as valid. Of course, it all depends on the context, and. Um, and the realization of it, but, but many different options are possible. Um, and at the end, it has to sound as if the way you play it is the only option possible. It has to have a certain sense of um, inevitability. And with, with him, um, there is something so pure about the way he makes music. Well, those are the two words that come to my mind when I think of Andres' pure music. That's mm -hmm. what I've often said, and I really cannot change my tune, and I have no reason to, because it really, I think, perfectly depicts what he has to offer. There's something so marvelously expressive about his um, body language, his facial expressions. He radiates something so powerful from the, the energy and the, um, the intensity of the, of the emotion that it really he really takes you in his in his wake. I mean, there is something very very strong, and you know the the wonderful thing about this type of collaboration is that you also get to experience it in a collective way because you see how the musicians are. I mean, they would just give everything for him, everything that they have, and then some. Elaine Grimaud, as you have a synesthetic skill, which is very interesting for those who haven't, and the most haven't, um, unfortunately. So you see colors while listening to music or while playing music. So what kind of colors do those two Brahms concerts have for you? 
Well, for me, the color association is dominated by the tonality. So D minor is always dark blue. Um, B flat is always yellow. And so, of course, the colors will change with every modulation in the piece, necessarily. But the overall tone will be then determined by exactly that, by the tonality in which the piece is written. So there you have it, dark blue and yellow. Do those colors help you actually to play music, to think about music, to concept music, to feel no, music? No, it really doesn't. I would be dishonest if I would tell you otherwise. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to experience. It's also not systematic. It's not every time I play music or listen to music, but it's, it's very, very often the case. Um, I have often described it as a, uh, a byproduct of an of an altered sense of perception somehow. I think when you're exposed to an art form as, as vital, as soulful, um, as passionate as music is in its essence, I think it is somehow sharpening other senses and this is something which I think encourages those associations. Mm -hmm. And if you say it doesn't happen always, when does it happen? When music touches you, uh, in a no, I wish way, I wish I could say that. It's also not the case. It's it's more. Um, it's really more random. Um, somehow, it has nothing to do with anything predictable or anything that you can sort of summon. Um, so, sorry if that's a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about atmospheres and again, well. Looking, yeah, looking your life, maybe you switched very often cities. Um, what does this fact make with your music? Do you think it has an impact on it? Yes, it definitely does, because in every city you meet other partners, first of all. Um, and even if you're playing a recital, then the new partner will be the audience, it will be the hall, the instrument. And so every place takes on its own um, very specific atmosphere, um, ambiance, you could say. And the wonderful thing about this, and this is probably why I'm still doing um, uh, ce no? after 25 years, 27 years now, is that it's always something different. Um, and for someone who used to get easily bored, that would be me. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's a real privilege to be experiencing this possibility for renewal. For Easily bored by what exactly? By, by things which I seemed to have um, grasped the concept of. Um, if there wasn't anything more intriguing, more challenging, um, more demanding, then I lost interest. So um, this element of freshness of something which is always, which lives anew with every new encounter, every new constellation. Um, I mean, look, even on tour, if you're playing with the same partners every night, it's never going to be the same. Um, if you play, let's say, three nights with the LA Phil or Berlin Phil, as the case may be, um, the same thing, those three nights will be three completely different experiences. So on Bestens, 
you, you have this crescendo. You go from the first uh, rehearsal, in fact, even before the first performance um, takes place, and then you have this, this uh, common growth that you can experience together. Sometimes the path is more in a, in a sort of wave um, um, design. It can happen too. Um, and that's really the beautiful, the beautiful part. That's what keeps me at it. But being a musician for more than 25 years, as you just mentioned, when did you decide actually to become a professional musician? I never really decided it. It sort of just happened. I mean, I knew that music was going to be part of my life from nearly from the very first time I experienced it. But I didn't know in what, in what respect, in what form. It didn't really matter anyway. Um, but then before I had the chance to decide really what I wanted to be, I had already made my first recording. And then all of a sudden it came out. And before I knew it, I was, um, I was performing. Not to say that I regret any part of it. No, I can't imagine. I mean, but you were discovered by such beautiful uh, musicians as Daniel Barenboim, for example, and Martha Agrich said, she's wonderful, she has to be a musician. And so many really great musicians gave their, yes, she should do it, so that's what she do. But you have many other interests, we should talk about them a bit later. Um, with what kind of music did you grow up at, at home? Well, mostly with, um, with classical music from the moment I started. Not before that, actually very little. My, my parents were not musicians. There were no musicians in the family prior. And, um, but my mother had a very beautiful voice and she was always singing to me. And somehow I still think to this day it had something to do with, with you know, the musical path developing mm. later on. So. So let's talk about the other Hélène Grimaud, because there are so many besides being a musician. But it's always the same one, though. It's always the <laughs> same one. That's the secret, maybe, behind it. But you have many passions beside the music. Mm. So you're very engaged in terms of environment, for example, animals and also children. On what kind of projects do you work right now? Um, well, different ones. There's still the Wolf Conservation Center of course, in New York, and I'm still you know, actively engaged with the organization. Um, as a matter of fact, to the point of going back to New York, uh, to be very precise. I think, well, for, the, for those of you who don't know what the wolf conservation is about, um, it's an uh, environmental conservation education um, uh, organization. It's a lot of shun. <laughs> at the end of those words, um, with a twofold mission, which is, um, again, environmental education on the one hand, because as I've often uh, said, I believe that there is no long-term hope for conservation without education. It's a primordial aspect, um, because still the, the main obstacle to wolf recovery is the lack of human tolerance. And so um, it's, it's very important. But then, also something which I always found very, very um, essential is this conservation work, the, the participation in a program which enables wolves' recovery in parts of their original range. And that program is called SSP, Species Survival Plan, and it is run under the auspices of 
in the case of the Mexican wolf and the red wolf by the US Fish and Wildlife Service, the American Zoological Association, and internationally by the IUCN, International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's a very, very important cause, I think not only for me, I think it should be for actually all of us because you know, to, to fight for um, a healthy environment is really to fight for the possibility of a future for us, for uh, generations to come, really. And in that sense, wolves, I mean, we like to call them engineers of biodiversity, um, and they really are a keystone for larger conservation efforts, because you can't seriously talk about protecting uh, a wide-ranging predator such as the wolf without talking about habitat conservation as well. Um, and, um, and then a rapprochement, which I like to make, um, a correspondence which I like to establish between, between this um, aspect of my life and the other one, the musical um, side of it, is that following the precepts of the German Romantic movement, um, you know, all these disciplines of our existence take root in a global intuition. And I think that one of the main dangers that we um, are exposed to at the moment is that things are so disconnected, mm -hmm. so um, specialized, but to the point of losing sight of uh, what the ultimate purpose, what the ultimate goal is. And um, you know, as long as we keep excluding from our economic choices and scientific choices, um, other living species, being animal or vegetal, then the future will be dark, it will be a dark one. Um, and as the romantics have always taught us, I feel, writers, poets, composers, um, the ultimate goal of, of life should be love, love in the larger sense, too, and there can be no love on the larger level without ecology. It's that simple, really. Absolutely, yeah. You're also a member of the organization um, Musicians for Human Rights, a worldwide network for musician, of musicians and people working in the field of music to promote a culture of human rights and social change. So how do you work exactly for it? Well, you basically seize every opportunity to do something, uh, whatever you may be asked to do, whether it's to participate in a campaign for human rights for various aspects of what human rights can mean, uh, whether it's to play a benefit concert for Amnesty International. There are you know, different, different possible incarnations of this engagement, um, and you just try and make yourself available. I mean, it's, you know, it's difficult because, of course, on the one hand, um, symbolically it's important. On the other hand, when you look at um, what happens in other parts of the world, then you realize that much more is needed than simply music at the same time. Um, and not just because I'm full of contradictions, but at the same time I feel that music is really responding to a, a need of our soul, and this need is a need for beauty. And it really is the benchmark, I think. Actually, the two benchmarks, I find. Um, one would be the arts, and what we do to encourage them, to support them, to preserve them. 
um, to keep them relevant in every aspect of our life. That is one sign of our degree of civilization. And the other one is how we treat animals. So that pretty much, I think, defines our level of, of, of yes, of how civilized are we, really. Right, so it comes together for you, those two topics. Yes. Ellen Grimaud, thanks for being here, and maybe there are some questions of the audience. So please, go ahead. It's up to you. Do you have questions? It's a beautiful opportunity to meet the musicians. Oh, yes, thank you for bringing say. up the lights, because it was a little bit of a dark, <laughs> so dark hole out there. Yeah, there's a question. The guy here. So the mic is coming. Hello. Hi. You mentioned earlier that sometimes it takes time for the music to manifest itself into your soul. So once it arrives, what is the process that you usually do to grab it and then move on and take it? Um, you, <laughs> you roll up your sleeves <laughs> and you get down to it. Um, that is, of course, the surest way of, of getting started. But you also, I mean, I feel it's very important, especially as a pianist, because we are so often deprived of our instruments through this life of travel, that you also work on the score, that you read the score, that you play the piece through your mind once you know it auswendig as by heart, but still you would want to be um, really doing both. Uh, one thing that I always find dangerous for any um, instrumentalist would be to go into automatic pilot mode and that is some it's a real risk if you practice so many hours that you can no longer be mindful of every minute um, at the instrument and it's just simply not really possible I think they even did studies about this about how long can you seriously concentrate and that means having every part of your system fully engaged in the act of, of working and that's very very important otherwise I think you're also more prone to having um, physical problems so um, so both are needed the, the mental practice as I like to call it um, and then of course the physical one as well because you do need to go to the keyboard and check physical coordinates every now and again it's not a bad idea <laughs> thanks for the question Other well actually sorry sorry uh, what I also um, would like to say is that once you have established this first-degree connection with the piece, you also have to, um, you have to not force it. And, and that is something which you sometimes realize when you do things on a deadline and you start working, you know, no matter how disciplined uh, people can be, we're all more creative under pressure. And if you wait um, to that point of no return, um, then you find that there is no breathing space for the piece. And the very best thing you can do is to actually start learning something or start working on something ideally before the first deadline is already on the horizon so that the piece can really develop organically within you know within yourself and um, I mean it's easier said than done in the realities of the programming but I believe that would be ideal sorry for the long answer other questions Please, the lady in the first row. Um, how long do you uh, do we have to wait to read your next book? Actually, <laughs> I, I just finished finished the last book. 
it, but it's coming out, actually it came out yesterday, the day before yesterday in France. And I do not know when it would be translated into, into German. I hope it will be. I was very, very happy with the work um, the uh, German Verlag did for the first two with the quality of the translation. Um, and so I would very much like it if they would take it, but it's too soon to tell. Um, and what is it about? It's called um, Retour à Salem. And I, well, it's difficult to describe it, but it's, uh, it's really a, an ecological plaidoyer. But every other chapter is, in fact, um, a story by Johannes Brahms, alias Karl Wirth. And it is something which was well, difficult to um, unveil. It, but it's um, investigation, in fact. Um, the starting point being a manuscript which I discovered in Hamburg, in a antiquaire, Laden. And um, then, um, also gleichzeitig with learning or relearning Brahms' second piano concerto, um, there's this enquête, you say in French, this investigation which yeah. then develops. Um, and what I tried to do is this um, jeu de miroir. How would you say that, jeu de miroir? This, um, um, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, we are exactly spiegel, spiegel. <laughs> that sounds funny, but that would be, it would be something like that. And, um, and to bring together all the really essential poles of my existence, so being, um, Ecology, music, Brahms, poetry, and of course, the wolves. Okay, thank you. So again, Brahms, so this person is really important for you in your life. Yes, he very much is. So as you told us, you made research, you went to archives in Hamburg to look for what exactly? Oh, well, I can't tell you because that would reveal too much. <laughs> um, so it's, it's uh, well, you know, both Johannes Brahms and, and uh, Robert Schumann, I think of all composers, are probably the two who created or tried to create the most um, um, links, connections, bonds between music and literature, music and poetry. Um, and, you know, I discovered that Brahms liked to write as well. Mm -hmm. um, didn't have the same literary ambitions as his mentor, Robert Schumann, but still, that he was doing it under this um, pseudonym. Um, and so it opened the door to all sorts of possibilities. Also found some letters between uh, Brahms and Max Klinger, this wonderful German um, graver. Mm -hmm was a mid-scene, as far as I know, wasn't he? Uh, well, he, he was uh, an artist, really, himself. Um, um, painter, but graveur, how, how would you say? Somebody help me. And Misha, graveur. Misha. Gra graveur. <laughs> graveur, yeah, it's exactly. So, um, so that's also a big part of the story, in fact. Beautiful. So we get to know another side of Johannes Brahms, maybe. I hope so. Okay. Other questions? Yeah, please. Um, coming to the bored fact or being tired, 
Um, reading your books, you can, we can see that there was a phase being tired, being bored a bit of uh, concerting and, and rehearsing and so on and so on. How did you overcome this going back and uh, going back into life and, and getting the spirit again of making good music? Well, that was, th that was the departure point for Leçon Particulière, for the second book. Um, I mean, you have to see it also as a, as a pretext for telling a story. That's also the reality of it. I mean, I've always been aware of the danger of um, this lassitude. Well, I haven't used my French so much in a long time, I think. <laughs> um, so being aware that this is a serious risk and having come fairly close at that time to, um, thank you, to falling into that um, sort of apathetic sort of state. I like to think that I reacted before it got to be, it wouldn't have been too late, but it would have been really a shame because there could have been a, an interruption of things. It wasn't at the time. Oddly enough, it was actually a few years later after uh, writing the second book. But to try and answer your question in a better way, <laughs> I would say, vigilance, mindfulness, it's really always the same things. You know, and sometimes people ask me about making music, writing, taking care of the wolves. Um, I think in the end, it's not really what you do, it's how you do it. And it doesn't really matter what activity you engage yourself with, from love to raising your children and everything in between. Ideally, it should be done as a spiritual experience um, in the sense that you engage everything that you have, uh, you invest your soul, you do it with generosity, you do it with honesty. Again, it's easier said than done, but if you do it and you give it everything you have, it is the best way of keeping it vital and keeping that a source of of energy, of something which, to go back to your first question, mm. something which is reinvigorating, which really uh, infuses you with energy and keeps you going. And um, yeah, in terms of giving life a sense, actually, isn't it? That's right. And, and always looking further for, for what that sense might be and what incarnations uh, there, there are for it in your life. Of course, it's different for, for everyone. There isn't one recept for it. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a perhaps a small piece of advice and I have to remind myself of it um, constantly because it's so easy for us, especially for us humans, to be in this multitasking, distracted um, um, being. And a good friend of mine used to say a wonderful um, veterinary medicine scientist used to say, you know, we are, we have to stop being human doings. We have to go back to being human beings because we always do too much. Um, and again, it sounds very simplistic, but it's, it's very true. And we all need time for this um, voyage on the, uh, the, the frontier between the world we know, this visible world and, and the other world. L'autre monde, 
And uh, again, to go back to the um, territoire de predilection, mamma mia, <laughs> um, the, the heartland of the German romantics, here we go again. So it's, it's something which, you know, they were always fascinated by the idea of the, the fantastical, something fantastic, and again, in the literal sense of the word. And I think it's very important to try and stay connected to that. And this is something um, which is enabled by, in my mind, again, two things. Contact to the arts. It doesn't have to be music. For some people, it's the visual arts. It can be something else. And with, um, with animals, because they keep you honest, they keep you strong, and they make every cell of your being the most sensitive that it can be. Because most of those cells are somewhat extinguished in the everyday life. And so it's, um, it's what I would recommend. It brings you also back to the basic questions of life, I think, dealing with animals. Yes. Being yes. confronted with what with is animals. essential. You know, it helps you put things in, in perspective, really. So. Well, further questions? There yes. Yeah, <laughs> please. Apropos German composers, what are your, your views on Bach? And mm. are you playing any anytime soon? <laughs> um, there was a time when Bach was, was um, a nearly daily presence. It hasn't been in a while, but um, I would still have to say that Bach is the foundation of everything. Um, the most, perhaps the most universal music that could, you could ever hope to get close to. I mean, something literally, again, something unique, but which um, sort of sheds in all, all possible directions. And uh, for me, it's perhaps the music that is the best proof that there really indeed is something out there. Call it God, call it subconscious. It's... Um, And you can feel that that was also what happened to him, that something else was um, uh, guiding him when he was writing his music. In this case, it was definitely God. Could be something else for the rest of us. So, so thank you, Hélène Grimaud.